we are concluding. Uh, we are concluding the uh, conference that we've been in all week. If you are not at our conference, I strongly encourage you to go and listen to um, all that was said. It was an important, important dialogue that took place. Um, this whole week, uh, but this is kind of the concluding word of the conference, and I was just thinking about this, uh, Marsh, I think this is my concluding sermon downtown, I don't know, are you going to have me back? And you going to let me come preach to your church sometime? Okay, all right, well, that's that's kind of surreal for me, I remember, I remember Marshall and I uh, sitting around saying, we should play at church downtown. Now I don't get to preach here anymore. Oh. <laughs> Moment. Yeah. Yes, I want a big honorarium. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> take it easy. All right. Um, okay. So even if you weren't at the conference, it's okay uh, because this this can absolutely stand on its own um, and be a follow up to my sermon last week when I was with you. But let's give our attentions to Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would fill us to the uppermost with your love. But we cannot love neighbor if we do not have your love. We cannot give what we have not received. And so here at the end of a challenging week, a convicting week, an important week, a week that we have, as a community, um, explored and imagined what it would look like to love our neighbors, to love this city. Lord, we need to be loved. And so I pray that you would overwhelm us with your love. Lord, I cannot, I do not have the power to convince everyone here that you love them. I can open your scriptures. I can tell them as articulate and passionately as possible. I can tell them that you love them, but Lord, you've got to tell them that you actually do love them. And so I pray by your spirit that you would tell everyone, not just tell them, that you would overwhelm them this evening with your love. Through Christ we pray. Amen. All right. So our conference was on neighbor love, is on neighbor love. Um, it was, so there's been a lot of talk this week about um, loving your neighbor, what that means, what that looks like if you were here. Last week, I, um, I preached on the greatest command, which uh, Jesus said, love God, love neighbor. This is what we are to do. We are to be a people of love, all of these things. Here's my question. Who's loving me? And I don't mean that in a selfish, narcissistic way, but in a legitimate way. You were made, yes, to love, Yes, to love God. Yes, to love neighbor. You were made to love, but you're also made to be loved. And the former 
depends upon the latter. Love is not something that is merely self-produced. It is a precious commodity. It is a precious resource. Love to the soul is what food is to the body. You cannot self-produce energy. If there is no food coming in, then eventually there will be nothing left for you to give physically. Love is to the soul what money is to the bank account. If there is nothing coming in, then eventually there will be nothing left to give. And so it is with love. All this neighbor love talk is contingent upon a healthy reserve of love. That is to say, he who has not been loved has no love to give. And so what I want to do here at the end of this week, with all of its wonderful convictions and applications that we've explored, is to end the conference by filling our tanks with love. (laughs) By filling us up with what we're going to need to love neighbor. Who's loving me? The answer is that God loves me. And that God actually loves you. And out of the abundance of the fullness of his love, I love my neighbor. The source of my neighbor love is God's neighbor love for me. But does God actually love you? And when I say love, what I mean is love, not tolerate. Uh, One of the repeated themes of our conference this week was this whole notion of tolerance and how um, shallow and vain that truly is. Tolerance is the great ambition of our day, and it's not working, is it? And it's not working because our neighbors don't need to be tolerated. They need to be loved. Well, the problem is that when most Christians conceive of God's disposition toward us, it is one of tolerance, not love. I'll explain it like this. Let's, uh, let's talk for a moment about the basketball game last night, shall we? Make eye contact with a preacher. You too. It's a fun game. Uh, like how it turned out. Um, it was definitely special for me um, on staff because I'm on staff with um, amazingly, pastoring in Lexington, Kentucky, I have uh, three, so um, you, um, <laughs> Nate Jones is at our other campus, and then the, my associate pastor, Mark Randall, who are huge Tennessee fans, and, and Justin's fine about it, Nate's fine about it, Phil's obnoxious about it, but it's okay, <laughs> but, um, but Mark, Mark Randall, and I realize some of you don't know him, but um, it was really fun to beat Tennessee last night because of Mark Randall. Um, because I have to day in, day out work with this man. And, um, and here's the thing about Mark, though. Um, if you saw him yesterday, Saturday, unlike Phil, uh, if you saw him yesterday, he had on a Kentucky sweater. Um, and, and it was the day of the game. He's a huge UK fan, but he had a Kentucky sweater on walking around the conference. And that was a very kind thing for him to do, very culturally sensitive on his part, so to speak. Um, but 
there is no one who actually believes that he actually wanted Kentucky to win that game. I heard one, uh, one of you ask him why he was wearing Kentucky on the day that they played Tennessee. And he said, he said, um, he said I'm pastoring in Kentucky. I, I can't make the people I shepherd mad at me by wearing orange. Again, very nice. But does anybody actually believe that he's actually truly for Kentucky? It's not that he's against Kentucky. He's just not fully for Kentucky. That is, he has to like them. He lives in Lexington. He's a pastor in Lexington. These are his people. So he has to. So he wears the Kentucky gear. He uses we when he's talking about Kentucky. He, he goes to the games. He went to the game last night. Um, he had on blue, you know. Uh, he cheers. But he's not fooling anyone. We know. We know his heart is elsewhere. We know that deep down he tolerates Kentucky because he has to, but Kentucky does not have the fullness of his love. Do you know how I, what I think? I think we think God is for us like Mark Randall is for Kentucky. It's not that he's against us. It's not that God's against us. It's not that he hates us. It's that he tolerates us because he has to, you know? Well, Jesus died for them, and they believed, <laughs> and so I have to have them, I have to be with them, they're my people, so I'm going to have to put up with them and pretend to be for them. Deep down, we fear that God tolerates us because he has to, but do, we do not have the fullness of his heart, the fullness of his love. He kind of just puts up with us. If that's how you conceive of God, you will never have the love required to love your neighbor. So this evening, I want to give us a vision, not of God's tolerance of you, not of God's pity for you, he feels sorry for you, not of even God's acceptance of you, but of God's love for you. We're going to use this verse that I thought of, Ephesians 2. If you've studied Ephesians, you know that there's a big turning point in the letter, that famous, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, this dense few words that give us this breathtaking vision of God's love. And we're going to divide it up two ways. We're going to look at the motivation of God's love for us and the extent of God's love for us. Let's start with the motivation. According to our verse, what is the motivating factor behind God's love for you? The wording here is very fascinating. If you're not a person who normally looks at the... Look, look with me, okay? It's in, it's, in your, it's in your order of worship here. Let's get technical here because the wording is fascinating. And use this, by the way, because this is the ESV. You, if you have a, a different version, that's fine. But for a second, use this. The ESV really, really captures the, um, the nuance here. So what is it? Why? What is the motivation behind his love for you? Well, we know here what we're looking for is the word because. So you see that in verse 4. You see because. So we know this is why. Okay, now look how fascinating this word, this wording is. Because of the great love with which he loved us. That really captures the nuance of the Greek. 
If you have an NIV, it probably says something like this. A lot of versions say something like this. Just simply because of his great love for us. Because it, it's a little awkward the way the Greek is. Because of the great love with which he loved us. But the ESB retains the awkwardness of the Greek there because it matters. It is so subtle, but it makes all the difference. God loves you because of what? Because of you? No. Because of this great love that is then directed toward you. And that makes all the difference in the world. The world operates like this. Because of you, I will choose to love. God operates like this. Because of love, I choose you. Do you see the difference there? The way the world works is this. Because of you, because of what you offer, I will choose love. Because of how you look, because of how you act, because of what you believe, because of common shared interests, because we share political ideology, because you're smart, because you're funny, because you're money, because of you and what you have to offer, I choose to love you. God works this way. Because of love, I choose you. The foundation, in other words, the foundation of love according to the world is the recipient of love. The foundation of love according to God is the giver of love. God's love for you is motivated by his very nature. Here's what I mean. God is love. Fact. Biblical fact. God is Love. I said that love is not something that you can self-produce, and you can't, but God can. In fact, he does. He is the fount of love, the source of love, which means he has to love. It is his very nature to love, and we are the means of satisfying his love. This is an entirely new paradigm of love. The world's paradigm of love is that I will be loved if I am lovable. Well, if that is so, you will never be loved, at least not in any authentic sense. We will be loved. In other words, we will be loved. And by the way, this is outside. The one exception to this would be the covenant of marriage, where, which is defined by love like this. Not I love you because you're lovable, because I, but I love you because I have vowed to love. And so it's kind of this oasis of, of love that like is God. But outside of this sacred covenant, the way the world works is you will be loved only if you are lovable. Sadly, also that's aside, that's a lot of marriages are working that way. That's a big problem with marriages. But... If this is so, if this is how we define love, then you'll never be loved in any authentic sense, only to the degree that you can fool people into loving you. If the motivation is of love is me and how lovable I am, then essentially my only hope to be loved is to trick people into loving me by concealing the endless things that are not lovable about me. So in this way, love becomes inauthentic at best or impossible at worst. And the reason why we have such a hard time believing God truly loves us is because we apply that worldly paradigm to God. God loves what is lovable. And I cannot hide or conceal from God anything. He knows me better than I know myself. Therefore, God can't love me, at least 
not in an authentic way, meaning what? He's just going to have to tolerate me. But friends, this verse is telling you that's not how God works. God loves because of His great love. God is love. He must love. His motivation is His very nature. Now, at first, that doesn't sound very loving to say essentially it has nothing to do with you, all about Him and His nature. But in reality, this is utterly freeing. This is the definition of love that you are deeply, deeply, deeply longing to find. And this is a love that will set you free. A love that loves you not based, not motivated upon you and what you have to offer. A love that is not motivated by your beauty, which is fading. Not motivated by your personality, which can be weird and awkward. Not motivated by your morals, which can be so flawed. Not by your intelligence, your success. Not by your family's togetherness. Not by how good of a friend you are. Not by your discipline. Not by going to church or attending conferences or any other Christian thing you can do. A love that is not provoked or sustained by you, but is based upon and motivated by simply God's nature, which is love. If that's the case then the love of God is unfailing. Or is it? Does there come a point when his great love with which he loves us comes to an end? I think that's our other fear. It's not just that we fear God merely tolerates us. I think we fear that there will come a point where he will tolerate us no more. Let's look at the extent of God's love. We've seen the motivation is not you, it's God. But will he give up? Well, let's look at the extent of God's love. Ponder with me the meaning of those, the beginning words. God being rich in mercy. God is rich. God is wealthy. But his fortune is his mercy. And what this wealth of mercy allows him to do is keep loving you no matter what you do. Again, this is not, this is not love that we find in the world. Tell me, by your experiences in this cruel, angry, vindictive world, how many times, how many times can you wrong someone before you are rejected? by this world. Once, twice, maybe three times, I don't know. Not many, but whatever it is, you don't get many chances. In fact, in our day of internet rage, one slip up, one wrongdoing, one mistake that makes its way online and literally the world is done with you. And this is why we have a hard time believing that God isn't done with us. How can he endure offense after offense after offense after offense? How can he possibly keep loving me when I keep hurting him? The answer, he's rich in mercy. Now, how rich is he? Well, there's one word in this verse that makes it really come alive. Again, if you're familiar with Ephesians, you know how big this word is. That glorious Ephesians 2 verse 4, but... But God. But what? Let me read for you 
the previous passage and find out just how rich our God is in mercy. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God is rich in mercy. When he chose to love you, you were not following him. You were following the course of this world. You were not passionate for him. You were passionate for the desires of your flesh. You were not by nature his. You were by nature children of wrath. What does it take to love people like that? A God who is filthy rich in mercy. Much more mercy than I have sins. And I have a lot of sins. Now... Where did he acquire his wealth? What investment did he make that gave him this return of endless mercy? It's in our text. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is true that God is love, as I have said, which means he has to love. It is his nature. He cannot help it. He must love. But it is simultaneously true that God is just, which means he has to do what's right. It is his nature. He cannot do wrong. And it is not right to love and not judge that which is unrighteous. And so here is the dilemma of God. Here is the predicament we have put God in. He cannot love those he must love. He must love. But he cannot love because of his justice. But he has to love because of his love. But he cannot love because of his justice. And so here we come to the cost of love. His solution is to make us alive in Christ Jesus. That is to say, he will make us lovable in Christ Jesus. He will make those that he cannot love, those he is able to love in Christ Jesus. He will make dead sinners come alive in Christ Jesus. But as you know, in order to make us alive in Christ, Jesus would require the death of Christ Jesus. And this becomes the ultimate act of love. Ultimately, what is the extent, the expanse of God's love? How rich is his mercy? That is measured by cost. If you want to know how much somebody loves you, you can tell by the cost it takes to love you. You know I love my kids because if you followed me around all day and watched how much it costs to love those stinkers, you would know just how much I love them. They ain't easy to love. And I will bear that cost the rest of my life because I can't help myself. I just love them cost and all. You will know 
how much love is by how much love costs. And so we look to Calvary and we find God's love knows no bounds. The ultimate cost means the ultimate love. And so what is the motivation of God's love? It's not you. It's his great love with which he has loved us. What is the extent of God's love? Endless, enough to handle all of your messes and failures. Now, application. The obvious and greatest application is our conference. Go love your neighbor as God has loved you. But the point I'm trying to make in this sermon and at the end of this week is that you can't love as you have been loved if you don't truly believe you are loved. So first and foremost, the application is to get refueled with God's love. Let this love fill you to the uppermost. And perhaps, by the way, that might be for the first time. If you are here, the, the, it's amazing every time I come down here, I'm amazed to see so many faces that I don't know. So I don't know all of you. I know many of you. But if you are here and you have not yet given yourself to the love of God, may I just pause and ask the most honest question that I can ask? Why not? Where are you going to find love like this? Surely you realize that pretty much all you're doing is searching for love. You know that's pretty much all you do all day long. This is why you try so hard on a daily basis to put forth a you who isn't truly you, but a you that you think will get you loved. Because you're dying to be loved. But aren't you exhausted? Is not the chase for love utterly exhausting? Well, what if there was news that there's a love out there that would love you not because of you? Not because of your weight, your complexion, whether you have the fashion just right, whether you have succeeded enough, whether you've got enough money in your bank account, whether your kids have it all together, whether your report card is flawless, a love that just loves you, not because of you, but because of love. And what if there is a love out there that could handle your failures? A love that doesn't choose to reject at the first sign of adversity. A love that isn't scared and running from all your junk. Who knows you more than you know how unlovable you are yet still loves you. A love that would die to purchase endless mercy to handle your endless failures. What if there's a love like that? And I'm telling you, there actually is. There actually is a love like that. So why in heaven's name would you ever, ever reject that love? I mean, he's there. Your God is there waiting to love you like this. So accept his love. And to us, and I recognize this is, this is probably most of us, to us who have accepted it, here's my question. 
Why did we stop accepting it? It's weird. It's, it's really weird what Christians do. We come to God initially because we are amazed by his great love for us. Everything I just said. You heard that in some capacity, in some way, from some friend or whatever. But we come to God initially because we get overwhelmed by how much he loves us in the gospel. And then we start to grow as Christians. And amazingly, our growth means that somehow we feel less loved by him. What kind of growth is that? Where did we learn that nonsense? That as we become more like Christ, we feel less loved by Christ. What? Here's my theory. We are converted by the gospel vision of love that I've shared tonight. We're converted by that vision of love. And then we slowly begin to redefine God according to the world's categories of love. A world that loves you based upon what you have to offer and a world that is vindictive and doesn't give you many second chances. God does not love like the world loves. So, in the name of the love of Christ, would you please just accept it? What an insult it is to God for his beloved, for those he loves to be running around all day. Does he love me? Does he love me? What I need to do today to make sure he loves me? Did I do enough things? Did I not do the bad things? And, and did I do enough good things? And da, 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 da. Just stop it, neurotic Christians. He loves you. Accept it. That once and for all, it's actually true that he actually loves you and let his love overwhelm you. Let it touch every impoverished area of your love-hungry soul. Let it banish every fear and doubt that you're impossible to love. Let it heal every wound, and yes, I know there are many, let it heal every wound of failed love from this world. Let it fill you to the uppermost until it overflows to your neighbor. That's how it works. As long as you believe God only tolerates you, then you will only be able to tolerate your neighbor. It won't be real. It won't be authentic. You'll treat your neighbor like Mark treats UK. You'll love them because you have to. Because you have to. It's a Christian obligation. I just went to the conference. I got to do this thing now. But just like Mark's not fooling anyone, you'll, you won't fool anyone. Your neighbor will know. That's not love. Brothers and sisters, our conference is not neighbor tolerance, it's neighbor love. For that to actually happen, then you have got to actually believe that, yes, God loves you. Let me pray. Lord, we've heard it sung, we've heard it proclaimed in your word. We're going to now feast on it in your sacrament. 
You've engaged our minds with your love. Now engage our senses with your love. Convince us that you love us, that we might love neighbor truly, authentically, with the love with which you have loved us. Feed our hungry souls, we pray in your name. Amen.